Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, it's been about two weeks since we've done one. And uh, yeah, some big news has happened, obviously. So we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about that. The first thing we're going to talk about is telling you that this podcast is in essentially three parts, which um, first is political news that affects Second Amendment, which is a pretty broad category. The next is comments on gun media and gun culture. And the third is my favorite, which is questions and answers. And we got at least five or six good questions this time. So if you hang on with us, why we'll get get through all that. But the the elephant in the room for everyone who does any kind of political commentary or has anything vested in the system is obviously the election that we just had. And before we get to the big enchilada, uh, we'll talk about the ones that they're not talking about. Okay, the on a national level, the ones they're not talking about is the fact that the Republican Party picked up some seats in the House of Representatives. And so they, they obviously didn't win control, but they put a dent, a sizable dent into the Democratic majority, which is a good thing. Because for us as gun owners and in the gun culture, if they try to pass a gun control bill, well, hey, it's there. It's not a cinch to pass through the uh, the Congress because of the slim majority. And if we can turn a few of these in districts that are actually uh, have heavy rural or conservative roots, um, you know, some of these Democrats are they're faced with a choice. The choice is they can vote the will of their constituents and not support a gun control bill, or they can come commit political suicide and support Nancy Pelosi, which means when the next election comes around, they're probably going to be in severe trouble. That's what happened in 1994 with the the goofy, you know, the Nazi crime bill that they passed, and that cost them the House of Representatives. And it'll do the same thing this time, too. I I would hope that they're smart and not try that, but they, they probably will. So the House actually has some, some good news. Didn't take it back, but at least put a big dent into the uh, majority. Okay, the next is the Senate. Obviously, with the uh, win in Alaska, the Republicans have 50 seats, which is half. And with two runoff elections in Georgia, if they win both, they have 52 seats. If they win one of the two, they have 51. So, you know, that's actually pretty good news, too. They lost a couple seats. You know, and, and traditionally, Republican states have now you know, got two Democratic senators. Arizona is the uh, one I can think of. And essentially, Arizona is was handed, the Democrats were handed two seats because this wonderful Martha McSally can't seem to win an election. She couldn't win in 2018, and she couldn't win now. You know, she couldn't win in 2020. So thanks to her inability to win an election, the Democrats get two seats. So, um, yeah, thanks. Thanks. That's if it hadn't been for that, if she'd won her race, there'd be it'd be looking pretty good right now. It'd be looking a lot better. But you know, who knows? Georgia, I think, will get at least one of those and maybe both. Okay, the big enchilada, presidential election. What happened in this presidential election? And and I hold out no real hope that any kind of voter fraud will be exposed. I think it's there. I think it's heavily there. But I don't think it'll be exposed. I don't think any of these recounts will will actually do anything that 
that uh, overturns the election. I mean, get ready for President, you know, crazy old Joe Biden, you know, the bore and the tramp, you know, are going to be president and vice president. So that, are, that should be humorous, uh, to say the least. Okay, how did, how did this happen? I, I tend to believe this happened not in 2020, but it actually happened in 2016. And that is when our democracy has effectively died. Okay, how did our democracy die in 2016? The outsider came in and won the biggest prize in American politics and, and was going to clean the swamp and do all this. Well, you can just tell through the last four years that the, the party elites, the party establishments, essentially united against Trump. They decided in 2016, after, after the shock of the election, that this would never be allowed to happen again. And part of the reason it would never happen again is because they would destroy Donald Trump. They would destroy him. And they did all kinds of things to do that. I've got a whole list, and I probably, I don't think I, anybody can have a complete list of everything they did. But the party elites leveraged their, their media allies you know, the drive-by media, the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, the evil, and created an axis of evil, the evil media swamp establishment complex, decided that, that basically, you know, Trump was not going to last. And, and this, is, this is it. They're finally affected. They tried all kinds of things. And a partial list, partial list of that is, Remember, there were the sexual assault allegations, and then, then they tried some pageant scandals, and then there was Trump University, and then there was the fact that he owned some companies that, that had filed for bankruptcy. Then there were his tax returns. Then there was re Russian collusion. And then there was the Ukrainian phone call over aid. And, you know, you just sit there and you, you look at all of this and then there was that remember even just the last one was that cemetery scandal where he never insulted the people there you know he never said the people buried in that cemetery were suckers and fools never said that but they did that to try to to try to affect the election and, and uh, um, drain off some veteran military conservative type votes I mean and then you you add on the fact that they were spying on his campaign that they sent they sent the F, the FBI on their own their own initiative went into the White House and and just kind of because they wanted to talk to the National Security Advisor and they basically frame him up and we all know that was all a frame you know this is all hideous stuff and and it's been going on I mean the uh, Ukrainian phone call led to that bullshit impeachment deal I mean it's it's been interesting. It, it shows you our democracy is it's effectively dead. It's effectively dead when the these elites decide who's going to run, who's going to win and who you have a choice of. And when an outsider comes in and upsets the apple cart, it's complete 100 percent war. And I mean, if you've been looking at anything in politics the last four years, it's been complete total war, total war. And, and the only thing they would accept is unconditional surrender. They won't work with anybody. They won't absolutely, they absolutely do not care about the country. All they care about is getting their par, their power base, their party power base back in. And you even have establishment Republicans who are supporting anybody but Trump. 
you know, the never Trumpers and all this, all this other nonsense. Our democracy is effectively gone. Our democracy is gone when they allow Antifa, BLM, and other terrorist organizations to run through the streets and intimidate people. When they make open threats, look at the St. Louis couple. Does that look like America to you? When people bash down a gate, go into a privately owned area, threaten to burn and, and kill people in their own house, and then when they pull a gun on them to, to, to you know, just try to intimidate them and get them to go away, uh, they, they come up on charges. It's complete fabricated garbage. And it shows you our democracy is in serious trouble, if it's not already dead. Uh, and I haven't even talked about voter fraud, which I think is huge. It's out there. You know, if people can counterfeit $100 bills effectively, which they can, you know, there are, there are people who can do that. You know, obviously faking a ballot and having it submitted to this process where, you know, 120 or 130 million ballots are counted in the space of, of a few days, uh, that, that seems to me to be very achievable and very easy faking ballots we there's all kinds of reports that voting machines were goofed up i i never like voting machines because i just don't trust that they report what's what's going on even in the best yeah i mean are you trying to tell me these things never malfunction um so this is all happening um you know the way they politicize the coronavirus against trump i mean literally the man of the people and probably if you take all the emotion out of it you take the personalities out of it and you just go down to effectiveness getting things done and accomplishments uh, trump's the best president the united states has ever had without question and 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 in fact with everything arrayed against him it's amazing that he the election was as close as it was um, just raise their thing and, and if it hadn't been for voter fraud i think there would have been a different a completely different result if, there, if it hadn't been for the collusion, you know, they talk about Russian collusion, but the real collusion of the media and the party and political establishments, uh, Trump would have clearly won the election. You know, when you look how intertangled all this is, all these people, you know, kind of sort of like the, even the failures like the Kennedy family, they're all hooked up. They're all in. There's this whole architecture. There's this whole morass of of jobs and 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 this patronage system that that takes place. so when the the democrats take power in january the republicans will leave all these patronage jobs and they'll go to fat corporate jobs media jobs and everything else and they they get to sit out and collect big money for four years then if they prevail in 2024 the the reverse happens they'll leave all those jobs the democrats coming out of the government will fill them and you know everybody's kind of happy and you know, the people who they're stomping on are the middle class. It's you. It's business owners. It's workers. It's everybody who's got a stake in society. I mean, these people are in control. And, you know, you you just see the, the swamp creatures. And it's even permeated into the military. Look, look at this fool Mattis. Remember, you know, Trump, Trump gave this guy everything. He basically, you know, called him he was like General Patton. He was the greatest general we've had since since World War II. He was just, you know, all this laudatory stuff. And really, Mattis couldn't even support basic common sense policies on defense. You know, we cannot garrison Syria. You know, fools who think that are, are fools. We, you know, we had to go in, defeat ISIS, 
you know, another accomplishment that, you know, look, look, look how well Obama and Biden did on that. They handed it over. I mean, they may as well have dropped welcome mats all over Iraq and, and every place else at those. And those are the, and they were the worst people on the planet. I mean, you know, they make, they make the Nazis and the, uh, you know, Japanese war criminals look like, look like Pee Wee Herman, you know, I mean, you know, ISIS, I mean, fundamental evil is really what that is. And you could just, you could feel it from them. You could see it. It was just horrid. And Trump took him out. Trump, Trump, is the commander in chief, he gets the credit for wiping those guys out. And he did it. So the best president that we've probably ever had has been taken out of office and they've tried every means they can the impeachment these investigations you know this the bullshit Mueller report all this all this garbage you know Mueller got up in front of Congress didn't even know what was in his own report and this guy's an investigator is crazy freaking crazy so this all points to you know the old Chinese proverb the may you or, or uh, prediction or whatever you want to call it may you live in interesting times uh, clearly, we're going to have uh, Biden is in no shape, even if he survives his four years, he's in no shape to run for reelection. So we've got now a four year lame duck president who uh, got a bunch of he's going to appoint a bunch of radicals in his cabinet. And, you know, we'll see where this all we'll see where this all goes. The, the good part is they're all so incompetent that they probably can't get a lot of their agenda done. You know, it's a lot easier to be on the outside throwing bricks and bombs than it is to be inside running things. So we'll see how well they do. But I never would have predicted this. I, I thought it would probably be a closer election than what I would have liked, but I thought Trump would actually prevail. But, you know, when you look at everything that was arrayed against him, it was going to be impossible. Um, you know, I, I when actually when I went to sleep on Tuesday night of the election night, uh, Trump was leading in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and he still had a chance in Arizona and Nevada, and I thought, well, that's that's probably going to be enough to carry him over the line, but just somehow, somehow through this, you know, mail-in, balloting, continue-to-count system, somehow all of his leads were erased. Hmm, that's really suspicious. So it makes you think, and again, if, you, if you're not upset about our democracy being stolen, uh, our right to vote being basically, you know, spat upon and stomped on, you know, illegals voting, um, all of these things that happened. You know, there's, there's a reason, there's a reason that California um, will never vote Republican again. And, you know, even if everything were fair in the election, uh, the 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 fact that New York and, and California will never vote Republican gives the Democratic candidate a, what is it a seventy five no more than that isn't it like an eighty vote um, electoral college advantage just from Jump Street just from the start so to catch up the Republicans have to win Texas they have to win Florida and they have to win Ohio just to get up close. That doesn't even match it. It just close. Um, they have to win the South. They have to win the Midwest, and they have to win other traditionally Democratic states. Um, you know, they have to win Pennsylvania. Um, 
to overcome that that huge electoral advantage that the the Democrats get on the West Coast, on the East Coast, and from the two shoe-in states of New York and California. You know, I don't know that our I don't know that our system can do that. I don't know that our system can ever be normalized again. Um, it's absolutely unbelievable how you know the the damage to the right to vote one of our most sacred rights as citizens you know you think about the kids who gave their lives on omaha beach you know or in some of these other bellowood you know caisson you know any of these other places you think about the people who through the years have given their lives for the right to vote and protecting the right to vote protecting democracy protecting quote our way of life and you see how that's all of that sacrifice is just being shit on it's just being shit on by crooks political operatives and this this dishonest horrible media that cannot seem to uh, to do anything uh, ethically or even fairly report the news they just can't do it it's all propaganda um, you know <clears throat> we're not very far from 1984 we certainly are not so let's go to something a little more a little more gun rights and gun related and that is our what kind of an era are we entering here are we entering an era of political violence and i would say that we are entering a very very dangerous phase and here's why even if the defund the police movement is not entirely successful it will at least be modestly successful and while departments may not get defunded i don't think they're going to get the funding that they're going to need to maintain a lot of the order that we we just take for granted, and these last five or six months um, have proven that you know that the police barely make it for for as when they're well funded and well equipped and well trained and and well manned. Uh, a lot of this has there's a manning problem now in many police departments. There's going to be fewer, lot less money for training and equipment, which means they're going to be a lot less effective. And the reason you know this is because private security is this now booming industry. So that anybody with who's young enough with police or military experience can go make some cash uh, in, the, in the private security business. It's going to look like, because it's starting to look like it already, the, the rush for you know government contract, the armed contractors, Blackwater types, and, and all this. Uh, that happened during the war on terror all of this is going to come back except they're going to be on our streets they're going to be guarding the people who have the money they're not going to be guarding the public at large this is going to be for the the people who can afford it so if you're an nfl player and you just signed a 500 million dollar or five billion dollar whatever the contracts are they sign these days uh, you're going to have to have private security you're going to need it um if you're a Supreme Court justice, I would get private security because people want to change the court. They don't like this ACB thing that happened. The radicals don't like it, and they may decide to change the uh, balance of the court through means other than uh, what we're used to. 
I'm not advocating that. I just foresee that, you know. They shoot two or three justices, and guess what? Oh, you know, wow, we just have to pick and confirm them the same way, you know, and obviously that could change the court and just basically, uh, um, you know, flip it back over so that it's got this huge liberal majority. Then where are you, you know? Um, that's really, really bad. So, you know, private security and all this this era of violence now I don't think that you know this election and the way it was conducted and the way it was stolen in my opinion um, have done anything more than embolden these uh, these people it's not like they're gonna say hey our side won the election so now we're just gonna go home um, they're they're coming after if their rhetoric is to believe to be believed if their rhetoric is to be believed they're coming out after us they're coming out after ordinary people because they see us as part of the problem. And so um, I would say that uh, you should take your Second Amendment rights very, very seriously and on local levels, push as hard as you can to get to get things get things done. Um, if you if you live in a restricted state that's and you got even a chance of easing some of those restrictions, I would certainly do it. I would definitely certainly do it. Okay, getting into some gun culture related stuff. Uh, you know, there's 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 a lot of chat going on uh, on you know some podcasts and a few websites and things. You know, one of the things that I didn't see coming, and I don't think anybody did, was the the rise of the nine millimeter 1911. Um, they've kind of always been around, and they've never been tremendously popular. Uh, and, and notionally, although I have not seen it, but, you know, there's always these, there's always the stories of unreliability, you know, you kind of bad magazines, kind of fitting something a little too small into an envelope that's made for 45 ACP. So, uh, you know, they've never been tremendously popular. And the other thing is there's just such incredible competition from other quality 9mm guns that, you know, do you really need that? I mean, uh, even... Do you really, why would you spend a lot of money or invest money in a 9mm 1911 when, in fact, there's scads of 9mm all over the market? And part of that answer is that it's a lot of the really good ones are coming from, you know, custom builders. And so if you want to spend $3,000 on a <laughs> a nine nine millimeter 1911 it's it's kind of your your choice i don't see the magic there to be to be honest i just don't see the magic to me the the greatness of the 1911 is the simplicity and the ruggedness and the the beauty of the design which is also coupled with the excellence of the 45 caliber 45 acp cartridge so those things kind of go together, and the gun is proportioned about right for it. Now I realize they have some double stack, nine millimeter 1911s. You know, hey, great. You know, it can sit there with any other uh, nine mil. You know, it can sit there with any other nine millimeter. I think, in in theory and in application, it doesn't look this way, but it is. If you want a nine millimeter 1911, they came out with that. God, 80 years ago, 85 years ago, with the Browning High Power. The Browning High Power is effectively a 9mm 1911, and it's a little bit shorter, It's it's got the double stack magazine, it's got a contoured grip, it's got essentially the same controls, 
it does have a pivoting trigger instead of a a just a stirrup trigger so it's it's a little bit different but but in in functionality it's it's the same thing it's the, the exact same thing and um, our friend of the podcast who's a big fan of the browning high power as am i he's probably a little bigger fan of it than i am but i i really like the gun um matter of fact the second hand gun i ever no no the truth is the truth is the first handgun I ever bought with my own money <laughs> was a Browning High Power. Now I had a 357 revolver and a uh, a 45, which had been a graduation present. So I I was I was uh, <laughs> I was already kind of set up. But the first gun I ever bought with my own money was a Browning High Power, and it is effectively a 1911 and nine millimeter without any of the attendant problems and without the horrific cost that these custom guns have so i would say before i jumped on that bandwagon i would uh i would probably just retreat to my to my uh standard nine millimeters you know a cz 75 is effectively like a nine a, a 1911 nine millimeter and people say well it doesn't look anything like it and and but when you look at the controls and you look at how things are placed the size the size of the gun and everything it's you know it's going to be just fine you know steel frames the whole nine yards so yeah i would definitely say that uh, before i went that route to get a custom nine millimeter 1911 or even a, a just a high dollar one and i i'm sure there's several manufacturers that make them um you can you can go to those other guns and be just as satisfied have the same functionality so that's where i'd go i think the old auto ordinance made nine millimeter 1911s with varying degrees of success the new auto ordinance i think are only in 45 and they're excellent excellent guns i think tesis makes a nine millimeter 1911 looks just like 1911 a1 usgi except the caliber is different and that's probably a pretty good gun too but uh i would um i i like 1911 a1s in 45 acp and if i if i absolutely you know would not use use that and wanted a 1911 like gun for nine millimeter i would go with those other ones i mentioned okay the next issue is one near and dear to my heart and that is ammunition and specifically gun manufacturers and ammunition you know i mean i can't really see two products that are more closely related other than maybe cars and and uh, automobiles and gasoline you know um and, and many of our, I think Remington, Winchester, a lot of the big names in ammunition really were derived. They may be separate divisions in a conglomerate, but they, they're closely linked to gun manufacturing. And, and it only makes sense. People aren't going to buy guns if they can't get ammunition for it. Or if you introduce a, a new caliber or proprietary caliber, hey, you better be selling ammunition with it. Same thing, the Desert Eagle was the same way with the... 50 a and e 440 corbon and now they're i think they're they called a 429 magnum which is a, an improved version of the 440 corbon if you uh if you're going to have one of these kind of cartridges you you better make ammunition for it because people won't buy it and won't use it if ammunition is not available at least from the source and this goes back you know like 351 winchester i don't think back in the day anybody loaded that other than winchester and some of the remington cartridges uh, perhaps the same way um you know the older older cartridges that 
we would now, if you listen to the last podcast, a lot of people would call them obsolescent or obsolete, but they are, um, they're out there. And so were the guns for them. So, um, you know, I think, I think gun manufacturers, if I were, if I were them, I would definitely, even if I were a smaller manufacturer, like there's no excuse. Ruger should go buy an ammo plant somewhere and make ammo that Ruger should make ammo. What they got the money, they've got the set it up in Arizona, set it up there, make ammo and go. And, and you don't have to make, you know, every caliber under the sun. I mean, I would crank out. They sell a lot of nine millimeters. They sell some 45 ACPs. They sell five, five, six rifles. Um, I would definitely, I would definitely crank out those big three, and uh, you know, even and, and even have a remanufactured line that's cheaper. Uh, there, there've been a couple of um, you know smaller companies that do that, but you know, somebody like Ruger could probably leverage the market to get the uh, raw materials a little bit easier. I also think that you know the smartest thing anybody can do. I know Tull Tula Ammo or Tull Ammo, whatever they call it. And, and some of this Russian uh, and former Soviet ammo is out there. Uh, former Warsaw Pact countries that, that still make ammo. I, I would go to Poland. You know, Poland is now a NATO member. I would say, hey, can you make me steel-cased 5.56? Can you make me 7.62 by 39? Can you do all that? And the labor over there is a little cheaper. You know, get get a, get an agreement, have them do that. I'd also have them bring in primers, you know, um, for the hand-loading deal. I mean... You have to have ammunition to have a gun industry. So they, they need to go back to that basic building block and definitely um, put that there. Um, you, you just can't have it otherwise. We need 22 long rifle. I mean, we cannot have... If, if five years from now, there's still no ammunition in stores, the gun culture will start to evaporate and people who would normally spend money on guns and and competitive shooting competitive shooting will just dry up and go away um because it, it's very ammo intensive not like when i was a kid when the biggest shooting sport was hunting and hey basically you need two or three boxes at the most a year um the fact of the matter is um competitive shooting needs ammunition and it needs to be at a price point where you know your average competitor your average joe lunchbox guy like me and like a lot of people i know can can afford to buy the ammunition without without having to sell a kidney or something so um the gun manufacturers better get together and actually this would be a great area where they could work together maybe maybe you get with one of your competitors and you do a joint venture you know or three competitors do a joint venture and get get the stuff out there because it doesn't matter what you make if there's no ammunition to shoot in it so that's that's my thought gun manufacturers and they have got to get into the ammo business to keep us all going okay uh, i've been on the road for like the last two months and i've been doing a lot and as a matter of fact i'm doing this from a hotel room that's in colorado springs colorado so for my latest trip i i actually went by car usually i go by plane and you know the fact of the matter is um I don't really like traveling with with guns in this kind of context, so I usually do not. But on a car trip, hey, you don't know. When you're going through Kansas and and eastern Colorado, um, you know, it's it's lonely and barren out there. So um, 
in case your car breaks down or there's some other, you know, you have some sort of an accident or something else, uh, the smartest thing to do is to, uh, um, you know, have some sort of protection with you. You, you don't know what you're going to need. So it, it was very interesting. Um, I looked through my, my small little collection of guns and said, what is really going to be the gun I really want to take with me? And uh, I had a... Um, couple other guys were in the same boat and one guy took a Glock 45 two extra magazines you know one in the gun and two extras uh, that's a pretty good choice pretty good choice uh, I looked you know my fear always is and I don't know if it's a fear but I guess my my um, my negative my negative thing is the last thing I want to be is chased by something big and have a gun too small so, you know, imagine, you know, you're being chased by an elephant. You have a 9mm. Well, it's not going to do you much good, you know, or, or kind of like the Jurassic Park, you know, what are those big raptor dinosaurs or T-Rexes is, is out there chasing you and, and, you know, hey, you have a, a Ruger 1022. Well, it's not really going to help you very much. So I actually went back and I said, I'm going to carry a, a Magnum revolver or a powerful revolver. And so I went through and I have... I've mentioned it on the podcast before. I have Smith and Wesson 624 that that's um, got a lot of use on it. Before I bought it, I got it actually uh, at a really reasonable price, and I used to carry it around on a motorcycle and everything, and you know, little motorbike, and no, nothing, uh, nothing uh, really awesome. It was a little motorbike that you just used to ride on trails where we used to live. We had a couple of them. But it was really nice. I got a, and I bought a used shoulder holster for it, a Bianchi X15. Um, so it's a it's a pretty nice deal. And so I, I basically have that with uh, it's 44 special. It's not a Magnum. It's 44 special. But I've got some good hollow point Winchester silver tip hollow points, and I've got five or six speed loaders. I got what's in the gun plus five or six speed loaders there. And the reason I chose that was well, what if I, you know. There could be animals where I wound up in Colorado. There could be there could be animals, although I don't plan to go interact with them at all. Could be there. Um, could be I have to shoot longer distances, maybe, maybe. So a good a good long barreled revolver, six and a half inches, is probably smart. Um, gives me something more than just the uh, usual service automatic range. And you know, basically. Um, in my capacity as an armed citizen, I'm not going to be out there, you know, fighting the, the forces of evil. So I'm not going to get that many shots off. So a revolver is good, powerful is good, and a big honking hollow, 44 caliber hollow point all seem to be good. So that's what I used as a traveling gun. If different circumstances, I might have chosen something else. Um, effectively, I could have brought a carbine, but. That's really not a um, that's really not a good option. Living in a hotel room, at least they, there's a safe in the room, and I can put my gun in the safe. And you know, if if I'm not here and I'm not carrying it, it's it's uh, uh, not going to get pilfered by by somebody who gains access to the room when I'm not here. So anyway, that's you know th those are the things. A, a carbine won't fit in the little tiny safes they put in here, and so. Anyway, that's kind of what I used for a traveling gun this time. Um, you know, if I were going to different parts of the country or if I was going for a shorter or longer stay or, you know, depending on where I was, I was actually billeted, which means staying, you know, where I was actually sleeping, I might have chosen something else. But for right now, the, the long-barreled, powerful revolver um, is a really good choice. 
Uh, I could have gone with a four inch barrel, say 357, and probably been just as well off with something a little more, a little more handy. But you know, this is this is not bad the way it is. So it's a really good deal. Okay, next issue is um, th this almost kind of came in as a question, but um, you know, it just can you discuss the Ruger Wrangler versus the Heritage Rough Rider? Um, I can only do this from just kind of seeing them. I don't have not really fired both of them side by side so I really don't want to say what I like about the Heritage Rough Rider is you can get the and I think it's about 150 bucks you can get the 22 Magnum 22 long rifle combo which is two cylinders the, uh, the gun is crude I mean the, and I mean by crude is there, there's not a lot of fancy this is not a beautiful Roy Rogers uh, single action but it's entirely functional and I think the base model in 22 is still around 120 bucks much rather have it than a high point to be to be blunt but that's that's just me ruger wrangler is i've seen them for under 200 they look to be a lot better uh, the appearance is much better i don't know that the manufacturing is so superior um, but i would probably if i was good, just going to buy one in 22 long rifle and the extra money didn't matter i would buy the ruger i think without without doubt uh, but you know, having that 22 Magnum, um, the 22 Magnum option is really nice, and so I would, I would be seriously tempted by that if I had, if I thought I wanted something a little more powerful than a 22. Um, the other thing too is I think they actually Heritage has a a bunt line. You know, it looks like it has a 12 or so inch barrel. Maybe it's even longer. Maybe it's, I don't think it's 16, but they have this long barrel bunt line with a magnum cylinder option i think that's pretty cool too that <laughs> yeah i have to i have to leave that alone that's <laughs> that would be very cool to have um you know and and I, for defense it's it's obviously a range toy it's really not a defensive thing but you know 22 magnum even with the barrel cylinder gap coming out of that longer barrel is uh, that would definitely put a sting on somebody if you had a ranch that'd be a fun gun to have that'd be a lot of fun to have so Yes, I would go with the Wrangler for what I perceive as quality, but I, I think for functionality, you know, the, there's a strong argument for the uh, the Heritage Rough Riders. So, yeah, that's uh, that's where I sit with both of those. Okay, that brings us to my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. Okay, and I think I've seen some of these before, but I'll I'll go through them again. Um, can you talk about which guns that you would have liked to have purchased, but quote, got away? Okay, that's really easy. I've, I talked about this once before um, when I when I was a younger man and, and had um, did not have a lot of money. I was offered a set of uh, a cased set of London Colts for five thousand dollars. They were in beautiful condition, very very nice. I, I that was four thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars more than what I had available, so I wasn't able to buy it. And and you know, I, at at that point in my life, that was probably not the purchase to make. So I I obviously didn't make it. But you know, if I could go back in time and purchase those, I would really love them now. And I think they would have appreciated. I think that case set would probably sell for certainly a lot more than five thousand dollars. I I would say that it's probably gone up ten times. You know. Um, if you can find a, 
you know the right the right venue to to sell it in so that's one that got away another oh, there's a couple others that got away uh i had a again i was i was a little bit farther along in life so i had a little bit more money and i was at a gun show and a guy had this really great table of guns this is back in the late 80s early 90s and uh so i bought a crag an original crag cavalry carbine from and loved it loved the gun i mean I, I love it to this day i mean just great gun but on that table for the same amount of money and it was only like 400 bucks or whatever but that's the gun money i had i didn't have other uh there was a reasing model 60 which looks like the reasing model 50 submachine gun but it's the semi-automatic version and it was made during World War II for like plant guards and things, you know, just people who they weren't, <laughs> weren't going to waste. They were sitting in CONUS, so there might be some crime. CONUS meaning continental United States. So defense plant guards would get these. Let me, I got to start explaining some of the words I use. So defense plant guards were getting these things. Guys they didn't really want to waste a Thompson on or they didn't have anything else. They weren't even going to waste an M1 carbine for on them. So the, the Reasing Company made these. I guess it was H&R was, was probably their manufacturing. But kind of made these things. And, and, you know, they didn't make a lot of them. And they're they're pretty rare today and pretty expensive. But they're, they're a very cool gun. I wish I had... Uh, I wish I had had picked that up also but i really do like the crag cavalry carbine for the history so i can't really be i can't really be too bad about that um a couple of other things i've seen uh let's see winchester model it was an 1892 musket with a bayonet very cool original not i think they've made some copies of them later on but this was this was a period piece very cool gun you obviously they didn't make very many of them and i think most of the ones they made they sold in like south america and places and i i don't really know what use they were i think i've heard one place where you know a lot of 92s went down to guard mines and other kind of high value installations in in uh, central and south america so you know that's probably what it was designed for or some military trials or it may have been that somebody just wanted a musket you know they just wanted a musket version of a of a rifle because they liked that style of gun uh let's see oh a um a german g43 and it had the scope but it didn't have the mount and so i i didn't have the money for it anyway but it wasn't that expensive but you would have had to get found a an, an original mount which would probably be very difficult and expensive or you find one of the reproduction mounts and hopes and hope it kind of works because um, i don't know the, the quality but that would have been a very cool gun to have that would have been very very nice that's one's gone away and and you know i can't really think of too many other there's other nice guns that are that are out there but i don't necessarily have such a burning desire to to own them that uh uh, oh, one that got away, one that got away. Uh, when I did live here in Colorado years and years ago, um, there was, they had a um, um, gun shop in Pueblo, Colorado, and they had a really neat kind of a safari. It wasn't, it, it was made in, I can't remember, Czechoslovakia or Yugoslavia. Uh, I think they called it a Churchill. It was, it was one of those ones that was imported. It, um, a 375 H and H Magnum that you know it had the leaf sights and looked like a safari rifle, and it wasn't that expensive, so that would have been a very cool gun to have. Not that I have any need for a safari rifle, but uh, you know, as as 
part of the type that would have been that would have been very cool to have i remember being very impressed with that so those are the uh those are the ones that got away and i'm sure everybody's got uh some story like that but those are the those are it uh let's see number number two should my revolver cylinder throats cylinder throat diameters match my revolver's forcing cone diameter um the answer is probably in a perfect world yes uh in a world where we machine things with tools out of metal it, it may not match so there's a lot of discussion a lot of the really hardcore revolver guys uh they they basically the two culprits are them being undersized or oversized oversized you can't do much about other than uh, uh if your cylinder throats are oversized i think you need a new cylinder if they're undersized you can have them reamed out or you can be like me i don't measure them i don't care it's all about how the gun shoots and how the gun shoots most of the time is predicated on the amount of practice and dedication that I'm willing to put into it and not all these mechanical fixes. Same thing, it, uh, the kind of follow-on question is, is magnaporting still a good option? I, I personally have never seen the value of magnaporting. Uh, I'll tell you that right up front. Um, the problem with it is, does it reduce recoil enough to make a difference? And, and I know that they can, they can say, well, it reduces it this much. Is it enough to make a difference? And does it, and I believe back in the 70s, they used to do a few tests where, you know, you do lose a little bit of velocity when you magnaport it because the gas that should be pushing the bullet out of the barrel are now going out of the vents, going up in, a, in, a, in an attempt to counter the recoil that's coming. So, um, and it's only a fraction of a, I think fraction of a second is way too much. It's only a tiny, tiny portion of a second that uh, may hardly measurable that um, that this stuff pops out. So I, I just don't think it makes a difference. And I think you, you just, again, it's another way of separating money from your wallet. I've never seen it where it really helps. I mean, yes, I know that muzzle brakes and all that work, but that technology is a little bit more developed and a little better. So, and I'm just not really the more you modify a gun from its original factory configuration the less it's worth in in many cases not every case but in many cases so you got to really think twice about magnaporting any kind of a any kind of a revolver and the same thing with the matching the cylinder throats if you can get if you practice and get good accuracy i wouldn't even worry about it most people don't most people never even heard of it Okay, the next question I have is, why don't you make YouTube or Patreon videos? And I, I will tell you that's right, because I don't think they'd be very good. And I don't think they'd be very successful. <laughs> that's the main reason I don't. <laughs> um, I might at some point. It, it, the only reason I would ever make a video is if I'm doing something new that hasn't been seen before or presenting something in a new way. Um, you know, I, I if you want to watch dry YouTube videos, there's there's a ton. You could watch dry YouTube videos for probably years if you watched it 24/7. You know, never stopping to sleep or never stopping to do anything, just watching videos. There's years of 
dry boring gun videos on YouTube and you know it, it's it, all the usual suspects are out there even the guys with the big followings a lot of their stuff you know you just you just kind of shake your head so I don't want to join that that cabal and I, I've kind of said it before I, I might do it if I can figure out some new way some new things uh, to 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 do but uh, right now it's it's not in the cards although I do know a guy who makes kind of some interesting videos he's a local guy to me and um, you know uh, they're not I think the quality can be very very tricky to do and it's also you know engaging content plus you have to go into a podcast I just kind of collect info collect things and, and kind of get on here and talk when you're really producing a video you really have to put some effort into the production and production time and equipment and everything else I don't have that kind of time or resources at this point so uh, that's that's kind of where we're sitting with that so that's why I don't do it alright this is a cool question this is really good what are your guilty pleasure handguns okay guilty pleasure handguns um, the first thing that leaps to my mind are cap and ball revolvers I mean, they exist for no other reason than I like them. They, the only reason I have some is because I like them. They're nice, they're inexpensive, um, they're fun to shoot, and, and like all good older guns, they're time machine. I mean, when you're loading, even with a few of the little modern conveniences, I got a thing that kind of looks like a boot jack that, that holds the pistol up so I can, I can charge the cylinder, you know, kind of holds it straight up. Um, and, and the modern measures that I don't think they probably had in the old days. You know, I got those nice brass measures. Um, I was actually gifted a bunch of them a few years ago by a guy who was getting out of the hobby. So I've got all these. I got all these things. And, um, you know, it, it just transports you back in time. And we're actually shooting them and you see the, the, the smoke from the black powder. And you kind of see the uh, advantages and disadvantages. And it, it just transports you back in time. That's all I can say. Uh, any good older gun will do that. But these really take you back. And they're, they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. So that is a, a guilty pleasure. The other guilty pleasure guns I have are, are kind of obsolete military weapons for this for the exact same reason you know um you know they take you back you're looking over the sites that a hundred years ago somebody was looking over the sites uh maybe in in a world war one battle you know i mean that's 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 entirely possible entirely possible depending or or a world war ii battle you know entirely possible you're seeing that same sight picture. You're seeing the same thing they saw. You're feeling the same recoil they felt. You have the same trigger pull they had. That, that, that's all priceless. And that's why older guns are bare, fascinating, uh, um, absolutely fascinating to people like me who like history. And as an aside note, I, I talk about a guilty pleasure gun. Um, I think it was $425,000. They just sold the... Uh, um, it's the gun that is documented to have fired the first shot at the Battle of Bunker Hill. You know, now they've they've got some provenance. I, I haven't investigated it to see if it's true or not. But even if the gun is just from the Battle of Bunker Hill, that would be pretty freaking awesome. There aren't that many, aren't that many Revolutionary War guns out there uh, for a variety of reasons. But um, But to have a gun that was there at the battle 
How cool is that? How cool is that? And that's not a gun you really shoot, although I would be seriously tempted. I'd be sorely tempted. But that's not really a gun you shoot. That's really a gun that you that you, you know, hold and realize that its place in history and, and how fantastic that really is. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons that, uh, to go back to the, the whole thing of, I would hate to think that our democracy is dead. I would just hate to think that it is, that it is dead when we've sacrificed so much and fought so hard for it. Okay. Those are my guilty pleasure guns. Um, I have to put if, if you want me to put models on there, I think 1911 45s are there, even though I, I don't I don't think that they're obsolete or they're, they're not like the cap and ball revolvers, but they're just, they are so much fun to shoot. Lugers are fun to shoot. Uh, Broom handle Mauser, any of those are, are a lot of fun to shoot, um, as are the Lee Enfields, Springfields, and, and uh, M1 Garand is on there too. That's another guilty pleasure gun. So I'll leave the list at that. Okay. What are your best tips for hand loading? Who that is there's a lot of things and and you could you could easily do you know a whole podcast on hand loading. I will say that the the top things I would say to somebody as pieces of advice are never use maximum loads. You know, you just don't need to. Never use maximum loads. Use good published data. And never use maximum loads. That's that's one thing I would say. Um, that'll save your guns. That'll save your brass. That'll give you a, a safety margin, um, and you, and you find your gun performs just fine. If you need to shoot maximum loads, you're going to wear out guns, brass, and yourself, um, and, and it's just not worth it to do. So that's that's one of the things I would say. Another thing is keep inspecting during the entire process. No matter what you're doing, you're always inspecting because there's we're people and we make mistakes and sometimes something will slip through. But if you're always looking at them, you're going to you're going to find those and, and it rarely happens. But uh, you know when you it, it pays off because you don't get a bad round in you know 500 rounds of 45 and you don't that one bad round could ruin your whole day. So be be careful and always inspect. The other thing I would say is when you find a load, stick with it and buy the components in bulk. Um, the best thing you can do if you find your rifle load is buy an eight-pound keg of powder and go with it. I mean, it's like 200 bucks, but you buy it, then you have it, and it's good to go. And uh, especially in these days, it's it's pretty nice to have the powder, the primers, the bullets, and, uh, you know, you can you can become pretty self-reliant that way if you buy enough of that stuff in bulk buy primers by the 5,000 not the 1,000 buy powder by the 8 pounds not the 1 pounds find a good load and if you can find like uh, there's there's some good powders out there and and search the data and find it mine is 2520 I can use that in a lot of different calibers that I load rifle calibers and you know what I buy an 8 pound keg and, and it's, it's great. It's good. And it turns out good loads in everything I've used it in. So that's just me. Other people have their own favorites. Um, but versatility is, is uh, something that I would say is, is another good tip. Buy things you can use in a, in a variety of, of uh, loads and calibers. Okay, what things should I buy on the market now that guns and ammunition are scarce? Um, I would go after 
the accessories that you never buy because you've just bought a gun. And what I mean is, buy the holsters you want that you've put off. Buy the spotting scope that you want that you've put off. Uh, replacement stocks, spare parts, any of that stuff that's not on the high demand list right now I would go ahead and buy because now is the time to buy it when your money's you know before prices inflate or while you you know rather than spending three times as much as you need to for ammunition uh, maybe you should maybe you should buy some of these other things and that way you'll have them then when ammunition prices hopefully normalize then you've got these other things there and and uh, you're all set uh, or you can just buy nothing. You just put the money and just say when ammunition prices come down, I will buy some, but as long as they're high, I will not. And, you know, just save your money, put it all in a, a piggy bank for a rainy day. You can do that too. But I would buy, you know, to keep yourself in the hobby, whatever your favorite handgun is, go buy a premium holster for it, a 150 or even a $200 holster for it, and belt, whatever whatever it is you want like that, buy that for it if you, you have a need for it and you want it. For your rifle, if you were thinking about upgrading a scope, now is the time to do it. Or if you're like me, go buy a spotting scope because, you know, frankly, the ones I used were pretty... They were pretty old and pretty weak and pretty inexpensive, so I, you know, buy yourself a better one. Anyway, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And you can always leave us comments on Podbean, which is our primary platform. And uh, just go in there, and, and there's a place where you can put comments, and go ahead and do that. And if you'd like, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, and go ahead and do that, and I will get to your question or your comment in the next podcast. But until then, this is Old School Guns, out.